pleasure to be with you. As Mark mentioned, we've been friends in seminary for about 15 years, and Mark and I have been good gospel partners, I think, to one another. He's prayed regularly and encouraged us a lot in our ministry over the last decade, and I've been praying regularly for Mark as well. Uh, it's been exciting as I've been praying for him over the last years to see his heart to be a church planner and to see uh, Zion uh, produce from that. So I've been praying for you guys as I pray for Mark. And so it's such a privilege to be here and to see and to worship with you and to encourage you in God's word today. And I'm really glad to be able to do that from the book of Esther. I'm going to be looking at Esther chapter 4. Before we stand and read, I do want to briefly introduce where we're at. I understand the youth have been going through Esther, so you probably are familiar with the book of Esther. But if you haven't read Esther in a little while, let me just set up the context of Esther chapter 4. God's people are in exile. Uh, They're in the Persian Empire now. It's around 480, 470 B.C. Um, A young woman named Hadassah, a Jewish young woman, was taken into the harem of the king who was looking for a new queen. He had deposed his queen. Uh, She hid her identity as a Jew, took on the name Esther at the admonition of her older cousin Mordecai, who was taking care of her. And in God's providence, she was appointed the new queen of King Ahasuerus. Now, there's an evil guy in our story named Haman. Uh, Mordecai the Jew, who's in the king's court, it seems, disrespects Haman. In almost a demonic-inspired retaliation, he decides not only to kill uh, Mordecai, but all of the Jews. And so he tricked the king, basically, manipulated the king into issuing a declaration that all the Jews at all 127 provinces of the Persian Empire would be wiped out. And that's where we find ourselves in Esther chapter 4. So as I read Esther chapter 4, let me please invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. And let's see what happens here as this decree has gone out, uh, the response of Mordecai and Esther the Jew. The word of God says this from Esther chapter 4. I'll be reading the whole chapter. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend him, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and took Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter 
so that he might live. But as for me, I've not been called to come in the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's household will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. My friends, I assure you that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever, and what you've just heard is God's word. Please be seated. Let me uh, pray as we continue on in our consideration of this text of Scripture. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's been a joy to celebrate and hear from many different portions of Scripture already this morning. We thank you that your word is life to us, that in your word you reveal the glory of you, your Son, and your Spirit. We're so thankful that every passage of Scripture is so helpful for our edification, uh, for our growth and our knowledge of you, and our equipping to serve Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that this passage from Esther 4, as we continue to reflect on it, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see the implications of this passage for our time and place, to know that you have called us to such a time as this, and that we might see our position that you have graced us with for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ among all nations. So please help me as the preacher of your word this morning. Enable me to speak clearly and convincingly, to explain your scripture well, and to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, give all of us tender, soft hearts to hear and respond to your word in a faith that results in new obedience. So we commit this time to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if the name Ethan Couch means anything to you. You may recognize him as I remind you of his story. Ethan Couch came into the news about seven years ago as a 16-year-old Fort Worth person, young man. He and some of his friends stole some beer from the store, went to his parents' nice house and drank and drank the beer and had a little party. And then Ethan got behind the wheel of his car with his friends and drove down the road drunk, and it did not end well. He ended up hitting some people on the side of the road, um, having a wreck, He killed four of those people. Uh, One of the persons who was riding with him was um, paralyzed. Terrible, terrible scenario. Ethan was fine physically. Uh, He went to court, of course, was imprisoned and went to court and was convicted of manslaughter, which one might expect. Now, as sad a story as that is, it wouldn't have gained national attention just for that. What gained national attention is what happened in the sentencing to Ethan Couch. His lawyers got very creative in their defense to try to make a lesser sentence on him than might be expected for someone guilty of drunken manslaughter. They brought in a psychologist, and almost in one of those lawyer-type movies you may watch on TV, they came up with a creative defense that they called affluenza. The the psychologist 
tried to testify to the court that Ethan grew up in such a rich house and was so pampered and privileged that his parents never disciplined him. They gave him everything he could ever want. And that as a 16-year-old young man, he had affluenza, not influenza, affluenza. His affluence caused him to be irresponsible and could not be responsible to know what he was doing was wrong. Now, you might laugh it off and think, what a ridiculous defense, but the judge, the jury, whoever made the sentencing bought it. And for manslaughter, killing four people, injuring one person in his own car, they gave him probation. As you can imagine, there was moral outrage, not only in the Metroplex, but nationally. Ethan has come up in the news a number of times. He's broken his probation. Four years ago, he went to Mexico, which he shouldn't have done, got in trouble. Earlier this year, he got caught with marijuana, got in trouble, and yet still roams freely. He struggles, they say, from affluenza. Now, we might laugh at that. We might feel self-righteous at that. We probably should experience some moral indignation at that. But I wonder, as Christians living in 2020 in a nice metroplex north of Dallas, if we sometimes struggle with a spiritual form of affluenza, could it be that God in his mercy has graced us so much with both temporal blessings and spiritual blessings that at times we may be numbed with the responsibility that those blessings place on us as God's graciously redeemed people? Could it be that sometimes we fail to recognize that God has graced us with so much for a very specific purpose? And I believe that he has. The reality being that we have more materially and spiritually than the vast number of people in the majority world. Many of those who are already God's people or who will be called to faith in Jesus Christ are so much in a lesser position than we are. To use Esther 4 language, you might say that we live in a palace a palace of untold blessing, and yet God's worldwide people, if you will, are in peril. We know as Reformed people that God has a chosen people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the world, and yet many of those are yet to hear the gospel and yet to hear the good news of Jesus, yet to enter into faith union with Jesus. And God has a call upon his church to obey the Great Commission and to go and to make disciples of every nation, to take the good news of Jesus to every tribe, tongue, and nation. In a sense, we may say that God's people are in great peril, and we live in a palace. We have been graced with lots of blessings, and the the reality is, what will we do with those blessings? Will we use them as God has intended them, or will we just contentedly live in the palace, focusing on what's just right before us? So this morning, I want us to look at Esther 4. I want us to consider how Esther responded, how Mordecai responded to their position, if you will, Esther's position in the palace, when God's worldwide people or God's people were in great peril. And the question is, what will we do with our position in the palace? And so my sermon title today is Esther and Your Engagement in World Missions. And I want to give you three encouragements As you lean into the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to respond to this text, you'll find the outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at the challenge to realize your place in the palace. I want to draw a real connection between Esther and our lives. Secondly, I want you to recognize that your place in the palace is useful but not necessary to God. It's useful but not necessary to God. And then we're going to see how God's word calls us to risk your place in the palace for God's worldwide people. 
Let's dig into our first point here to realize your place in the palace. And I think you may be struck with how far removed Esther is from the struggle of her people. Now, as we said, there's been a world a decree that everyone in the province among the Jews would die. Mordecai learns of it, and he's, he's put on sackcloth and ashes. But when we look at the text of Scripture, Esther seems far removed from the reality of what's going on. Look at verse 3. In every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes, including her own older cousin Mordecai. Everyone seems to know about this but Esther. Because look at what she says in verse 5. She doesn't understand why Mordecai is, is, is mourning. Verse 5 says, Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai. Notice what it says, to learn what this was and why it was. You see, she's far removed from the plight of her people because she's in her palace, oblivious, perhaps enjoying the comforts of being in the palace. Literarily, too, the author helps us to see that how she has slowly removed, she's been in the palace for about five years now, how she slowly distanced herself from God's people. Hebrew narrative is, is by nature very subtle. It makes its point in very subtle ways. And it really wasn't until I was studying this text a number of years ago to preach on this the first time that I noticed that Esther and Mordecai no longer communicate face to face, do they? Do you see that as they're having this dialogue, we kind of tend to think of them as you know, face to face, but they're doing it through a mediary. Esther sends through Hatak to Mordecai to find out. He responds to a mediary. And I think the, the text, the author of Scripture is trying to point up how Esther has grown apart from her people. So much so that a decree can be issued for their annihilation, and she's clueless. She has no idea what's going on. Now, like you, I'm an Esther. I live in a palace. I've grown up in the same area with the many privileges that you have. But for a moment, I need to be Mordecai to you today. I need to remind you of your place in the palace and the responsibility that you have. I'm struck by this as a missionary to India. I work with very both rich and poor, but many poor pastors in our presbytery. I work with men who, even as a missionary living on missionary support, I am wealthy compared to many of the pastors that I spend time with in their homes and have in my home and spend time with. I mentioned in our Sunday school presentation, if you were here, Kempana, just one of our many pastors I labor alongside. Kempana, a father of two and a great passion for the gospel who lives in a house or in a flat apartment that was probably half the size of your kitchen with a double bed that him and his wife and his two children sleep on together. And when they have our family over for dinner, we sit on that. That's the dining room table. That's the family bed. Everything is in this one little room, and he eats rice and dal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, except on the rare occasion he has a guest like us and may have some meat. A man who probably lives on a couple hundred dollars a month, yet has great passion for the gospel, great desire to preach God's word and to extend Christ's church. And I'm struck with how much we have. India is a desperately needy place, and many of the majority world is. But I'm also struck by the spiritual poverty. We planted a church, New City Fellowship, in downtown Bangalore, a city center church. And over and over again, almost every Sunday, we would have someone in there who's very educated, businessman, university student, well-spoken in English, and it would be the first time they've ever been in a Christian worship service. And when I would sit down and have coffee with them and talk to them about the gospel, 
They knew nothing about the Christian gospel, though they might be counted as global citizens in some ways. And if you get outside the cities, the story is even worse in a place like India, a city, as Mahatma Gandhi famously said, or a country of 700,000 villages. There was a young man we trained about seven years ago. Uh, He went through a program, some curriculum I wrote, for about a year of training, and his passion was to go and preach the gospel to a village that he knew was, didn't have no church. It was not far from where he grew up, and so he thought, when I get my training, I'm going to go out there and preach the gospel. And so one day, he finally shows up to the village and begins to openly proclaim the good news of Jesus. And in a village setting, you can do that. You can't do that in the city uh, in America, but in a village setting in India, you can go and just begin to speak, and people will listen. And he began to proclaim to them the good news and talk about that God, their creator, was not the gods they were worshiping in their village, not the idols, that the God who made the Lord in heaven and earth loved his people, and yet we were out of sorts with him because of our rebellion against him. And yet he spoke about how this love of God had sent his own son to be a sacrifice for those who would trust him, who would die in the place of sinners and would give them the free gift of forgiveness and reconciliation with God if they would yet join themselves to Jesus by faith and believe in them. And so he's just preaching the good news And as he's preaching the good news, he begins to hear this older man shout, You're too late. You're too late. You're too late. And he doesn't understand what the man's saying at first. He simply thinks, oh, it's too late. He says, no, even today you can be saved. Even today God will accept you if you turn from your idols and your sin and trust in Jesus. And the man says, no, you don't understand. You're too late. Just yesterday, we sacrificed a 10-year-old boy to our village gods. We did not know that God had provided the sacrifice for his people. Friends, this is not 200 years ago. This is seven years ago. Child sacrifice, totally ignorant of the gospel. Now, child sacrifice isn't super common in India, but it illustrates the point of the ignorance of the gospel that is in a place like India and much of the developing world, both in village and professional alike. And yet, for many of you, you never remember a day when you didn't have access to a Bible. Many of you never remember a day that you didn't grow up in a church and have a chance to hear the good news of Jesus. You are a blessed people spiritually. You are a blessed people materially. And I'm not here to guilt you for that at all. I want you to, first of all, see what you have and rejoice and give thanks to God's graciousness to you, both in temporal blessings and in the spiritual blessings of growing up in a culture, in a place where you can freely hear the gospel, where you never have to worry about where your next meal is coming from, where you have access to good medical care and other things. I want you to rejoice in that. Give thanks to God for that. And I'm not here to make you feel guilty about that, but I am here to remind you that compared to the rest of the world, for the most part, you live in a palace. And God has put you here by his grace Not merely for you to rejoice and give thanks, but to steward that for his worldwide people. You see, Esther had to come to grips that she lived in the place of privilege for a purpose, and that was to serve God's people with what God has given her. Now, one of the unique things of the book of Esther, for you young people who've studied it, it's fresh in your mind, but for those of you who may not have read Esther lately, is that the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, and that's intentional. Again, it's a literary device to show that behind every act of human history, behind when everything seems out of sorts, God is providentially ruling on behalf of his people. God is there. He is moving. He's at work. 
And when Mordecai comes to Esther, he reminds her that she didn't get to where she got by her own abilities alone. Look at verse 14, if you would. Famous verse, the most famous book of uh, verse in Esther. He says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And look at this phrase. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The word come here is a causative verb. It's the idea that you have been caused to come there. You see, Esther had no control over the place of her birth. She had no control over the fact that she was a stunningly beautiful woman. She had no control over the fact that God graced her with a high EQ. She was able to relate to people well. She had no control over the fact that she found favor in the sight of uh, one of the eunuchs who helped her. She was in a beauty competition that, man, there were a bunch of stunning beauties, and the king had one night with each one and chose among all these new concubines which one would be his queen. She had no control over the fact that he chose her. She had little control over the place she was at. Some of you in here have worked very hard in your life. You've been diligent and working hard in school and your job, and you may be very successful but the reality is, is that probably 95% of where you are is totally out of your hands. To be born in the time and place you are, maybe to have the parents that you had, to have the economic resources that you had, to be in a place where you hear the gospel, you have very little to do with it. Very little. God has been merciful to you. God has been gracious. You have come to this palace because of his mercy Friends, what's true of Esther is also true of us. And I want to speak to you first who may not yet follow Jesus. Kids, I want to speak to you. If you're a kid here and you've grown up in a Christian home, whether you're 5 or 15, you don't understand the wonderful privilege it is to grow up in a Christian home as I did as well. You never remember a day probably when you didn't hear the good news of Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners, where you didn't know that God was the Creator and yet there are many people around the world who are yet to hear that good news. There are hundreds of millions of Indians who will live and die and spend a Christless eternity under God's wrath who never, ever had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And yet you may have heard it every single day of your lives. And young people or older people, adults who may be here exploring the Christian faith, to be able to hear the Bible taught faithfully by Mark and the other pastors who may preach here is a privilege that much of the world does not have. And so I urge you, young people, don't, don't neglect it. Take advantage of the opportunity. Flee to Jesus. Turn to him as your Savior. God has put you here for such a time as this to hear the good news. you're an adult non-Christian here, you may think the cost of following Jesus is too much. You may think, I don't know what Jesus will call me to do with my life. I want to do what I want to do with my life. You may struggle with affluenza as well in that sense, and you need to know that your place in the palace will ruin you if you don't take advantage of the opportunities God has given you. Nothing will ultimately ever satisfy you, and even if you think it does, You'll be ruined when you stand before God as your judge. And so I urge you, if you're not a Christian yet, to take advantage of the opportunity that you have to hear the gospel and to flee to Jesus 
Don't let another day pass without clinging to him. And for those of us who know Christ, we need to be reminded that our freedom in Christ as Christians is to be able to do whatever God calls us to do with the blessings that he's given us. But if our place in the palace, if holding on to all the blessings we have is more important than responding to God's call, this palace that we live in will be a prison for us. If we're afraid to leave family, if we're afraid to leave our high-paying jobs and the security or the pseudo-security that brings us, if we're afraid to leave the comforts of home to go to where God may call us, if we're afraid to give and be a, a sacrificial sender who, who lives differently because we recognize we've been given a stewardship of so much and we want to maximize our participation in being a sender, if we won't do that because we're holding on, then we will be slaves in the palace because we make an idol out of the good gifts God gives us, and idols always enslave. You see, friends, God is doing good things to challenge us. I jumped ahead of my notes. I apologize for this. Let me come back. God is calling us to be the instruments in his hands, to use our place in the palace to take the good news of Jesus to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And not out of guilt, but out of a joyful recognition of all that we've been given. And so church, I, I call you today to recognize your place in the palace. And as we think about how to use that, I, wanna, I want us to stop. And before we get into think about how we are to risk it, I want us to balance our God-given purpose with a bit of humility. And that it's helpful for us, secondly, to recognize that your place in the palace is useful but not necessary. Let me say that again. Your place in the palace is useful but not necessary. Friends, one of the things that we know as Reformed people is that the salvation of God's people will come, right? Regardless of us. We're not the Messiah. God has a chosen people. God, Christ redeemed those people and he will bring them to faith. He's covenanted together to make it happen and yet he calls us to participate. He calls us to be his hands and feet. He deigns to use us, but not one of us is ultimately necessary. We are simply useful. Look at how Mordecai responds to God's sovereignty. Mordecai has this wonderful balance of knowing that God is sovereign, that God will save his people, and yet also acting responsibly. Mordecai doesn't just say, well, God's going to save us, and so I don't have to do anything. You know, I can just simply trust God. I'm going to sit in my chair. No, what does he do in our text? He, he tears his clothes. He laments in ancient Near Eastern fashion. He concocts a plan to go to Esther and urge her to use her place in the palace. He persuades her. I mean, look at his persuasion. Some would say he threatens her. Look at verse 13. It says, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Sounds kind of threatening. Verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's household will perish. So he is pressing on her the importance of her obedience, if you will, to serve God. But notice, he's not looking to himself or Esther as the savior of God's people, ultimately, is he? Again, in verse 14, notice his, his confidence. If you keep silent, now he... Humanly speaking, she seemed like the best chance of deliverance, but he says, if you keep silent at this time, notice his confidence. Relief 
and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. God will save his people. God is sovereign. You see, Mordecai undoubtedly knew the promises made to Abraham. He knew that God would bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. He knew that God would never let all of his people disappear. Some may have to suffer, but God would save his people. You see, Mordecai recognizes that Esther needs to be obedient to serve God's people. And she can be incredibly useful, perhaps, to serve God's people. But at the deepest reality, she is not necessary for God to save his people. And friends, it is our reformed belief in God's sovereignty that allows us to engage and use our privilege and our place in the palace in the right way. Our belief in his sovereignty should be the greatest motivator to engage in God's mission. And it gives us so much freedom as we engage in that. When I was in India, we were having some meetings in, uh, with other MTW missionaries in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And I'm, in a, I'm a little bit of an adventurous type of person, and when I go to a new place, I like to explore. And I knew that we had one afternoon at the end of the conference that I had before we had to fly back to India. And so I began to research what's the funnest outdoor thing to do around Chiang Mai, Thailand. And I discovered something that people were continually talking about called the Flight of the Gibbon. The Flight of the Gibbon is a ziplining tour through the tops of the Thai rainforest. And it was rated not only as the best entertainment or outdoor activity in Thailand, but in all of Asia. And I thought, okay, I can probably swing that. The problem, though, as I began to explore it is that, again, you're in the tops of the tree forest, 100 feet off the ground. And you know what problem I have? I'm afraid of heights. I thought, ooh, I don't know if that sounds good. It sounds exciting, but it sounds terrifying to me. And so I did a little bit more research, and uh, it looks like they had a great safety rating. No one had ever died there. Uh, they talked about the equipment they used. I consulted with my rock climbing teammate, and he said, yes, this is the best equipment to, to, to latch you in. And they made a promise that at every moment when you're up in those trees for two hours ziplining over 22 zip lines, some of them 1,000 feet long, you'll be latched in at all times. There'll never be a time when you're not a safety harness there. I thought, okay, I can do this. And so a friend of mine, we went, and it is the funnest thing I have ever done. It was amazing. There was one point we were literally on a zip line 1,000 feet long, 100 feet off the ground, going about 50 miles an hour. And even though I'm scared of heights, I wasn't terrified because I felt secure in the ones who were protecting me. I knew that I was harnessed in. I knew they had the best equipment, the best training that those that were caring for me. And it gave me the freedom to put aside fear and just to enjoy it. And enjoy it, I did. If you go to Thailand, do the flight of the gibbon. You see, the good news is that as God calls us to maximize our place in the palace for his global mission, we don't have to depend on ourselves. It's not all about us. If we think it's all about us, we'll either have one of two experiences as we engage in God's mission. Either we'll have success, and then we'll get really a big head. Oh, it's really about me. I'm so faithful in sharing the gospel with my neighbors. I'm such a good missionary. I'm so generous in how I live so that I can support the work of mission. And we begin to focus on ourselves, or more likely, when we see the struggle to be generous with our finances to give, when we struggle to reach out to our neighbor with the gospel, when we struggle to go into the mission field and we find it hard and difficult, if we think it depends on us, you know what's going to happen? We'll despair. Oh, man, this is too much for me. But friends, when we know that God will save his people, that God says that we are useful but not necessary, it gives us the freedom to participate, certainly out of obedience, 
because we are disobedient if we do not participate as a goer or a sender, but we participate as a privilege and not a necessity to God. Guilt doesn't drive us. A sense of being the Messiah does not drive us. It's a love for the glory of our triune God, a desire that Christ would be worshipped by those who he redeemed on that cross, and that God is glorified by our glad-hearted obedience to his great commission. Friends, we are useful, but not vital. And that's really key to remember. And so I call you to recognize that your place in the palace is useful, but not necessary. And friends, once we see our calling, it will take gospel courage to thirdly risk your place in the palace for God's worldwide people. You see, Esther had to be willing to take a risk in order to use her position for God's purposes. Look at verse 11. Let's see why she had such caution. Remember Mordecai saying, hey, you need to go speak to the king. Verse 11, she says this, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death. In other words, don't show up unannounced. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Now you may think, well, you're the queen. But notice what she says. Here's the caveat. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. She's been the queen for about five years. Remember, he has a history. He deposed his queen Vashti and got another. He has a harem of the most beautiful, well-cared-for, beautified women in the kingdom to choose from. Perhaps she thought, I've fallen out of favor. He's got a new young thing, you know, and he hasn't called me. If I show up, he may say, this is my chance to get rid of her because I can easily follow this law and she's dead and I can get a new queen. And so there's great risk. She recognizes that. But Mordecai reminded her that she was in the palace for a reason. Again, verse 14, the end. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, for a purpose. And so Esther, Esther decides to risk it. Look at verse 16. She says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go up to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I jumped ahead of this a minute ago, but I do want to remind us, whether Christian or non-Christian, again, that if we're not willing to risk our place in the palace, the palace will become a prison for us. It will enslave us as we seek to find satisfaction in the gifts of God instead of God the giver in obedience to God's mission, then the very gifts God has given us will not satisfy and will actually destroy us in some way. But our freedom in Christ is not to make a, an idol out of the gifts God gives us, but to have the freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit to use those blessings for the sake of his kingdom to be willing to risk our place in the palace. And when we think about missions, whether as a goer or as one who sins. And friends, our engagement in world missions calls us to risk to participate in the way that we should. Friends, if you go, if God may be calling some of you, and I hope he is calling some of you, young or old, to go, it will cost you. It's hard. I've been doing it for 10 years. It doesn't get easier. It is hard to leave Texas. Texas is wonderful. To leave Texas barbecue and Tex-Mex is hard. When I was in India, I missed Tex-Mex more than my family the first few months, but I do miss my family. It's hard to be away from parents when they're struggling. 
My grandmother tried to kill herself multiple times when I was Indian, not to be there for my dad, his mom, or to be there for my grandmother, who's like a mother. It's challenging. My kids got really sick a lot. There were times we thought they might die. There was risk. It's hard. It's hard. But God calls us to risk. Because at the end of the day, we ultimately don't risk anything. Because resurrection is promised to us. And so God calls us to gladly take risk. And so I wonder if some of you are wrestling with, is God calling me to go? And I would beg you to consider whether God has put you in a palace to go, to serve God's people in that way. Some of you who may be thinking about seminary and pastoral ministry here, I want to challenge you to think about the gift of stewarding such a wonderful theological education for the nations. So many who do not have the same theological training and privilege we have. The reality is that many of you who are church members here, who have been in a church world, have more theological training than many of the pastors I've worked with. You know more about the Bible, Reformed theology, than many of the pastors I've worked with in India. Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm just a businessman, I'm a lawyer, I'm a teacher, whatever. I don't know that I can do that. Let me challenge you. In today's climate, the, the hardest to reach places, the places that are hardest for a traditional missionary like me who's only theologically trained to go in are, are more open to you who have a, a vocation as a teacher, as a businessman, whatever your vocation may be. In some of the places in the Middle East and in India and other places where typically are the hardest to reach and the most unreached places, you can more freely go than me. And could it be possible that God would call you to use your vocation and to go to a more difficult place? to take a posting in your company, or to find a new company that has international postings and to go for two and three years and be part of a local church there and use your gifts and encourage those pastors and share the gospel. Yes, it's risky, but God calls us to gladly take risks, to use our place in the palace. For many of you, God may be challenging you to be a radical sender, to be one who gets onto God's mission and you know your calling is to be here and reach your nations and work here and, and yet you know that God calls you to use your resources. And maybe you would begin to think differently about how you use the resources that have been entrusted to you. That you wouldn't be just content to pay your tithe and use the other 90% for yourself. But maybe you would get a kingdom vision where you would begin to have a goal that the more that God increased your standard of income, you wouldn't increase your standard of living, but your sacrificial giving. Where you would have a goal where maybe you would want to get to 20 or 30 or 40% of your income giving away for the gospel both locally and globally. Because you catch on to God's mission. You know that you are among the wealthiest people who've ever lived in the history of the world. And there's a stewardship of that. You live in the palace. And God calls you to steward and risk and to be more modest in what you spend on yourself so that you might be more generous towards his kingdom. I don't know how God is calling you to risk, but I know if you are united to Christ by faith, you are called to obey, not because you are necessary, but because you are useful and your Redeemer calls you and equips you by his Holy Spirit to be obedient to the Great Commission, to either go or send, and the only other option is disobedience to your Redeemer. But how can we find the courage to live in this way in the palace, friends? I think we see two things in our text before we wrap up. One is in the immediate text and one is in the larger context. In the immediate text, notice what Esther does when she realizes that she's going to risk it. Look at verse 15. 
Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. What does Esther do in light of the high calling to risk her place in the palace? She recognizes she does not have it within her to do what God is calling her to do. She drops to her knees in earnest prayer, not only individually, but as you will as a corporate body. And along with the Jews, they seek God's face in prayer. And they say, God, would you save your people? Would you use my means? But Lord, would you do it? Would you do it? And friends, if God, if you feel the urge of God calling you and, and, and urging you to risk your place in the palace when it comes to God's worldwide mission, whether as a goer or a sender, the first place to do is drop on your knees and say, God, I cannot do what you call me to do in my own strength. As Augustine said, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. Lord, I can't do it, but would you do it through me? And so prayer and asking for that help is the first place. The second place that we see, the second thing that's so vital, let me introduce by concluding with a story. When I first moved to India, we were in the state of Karnataka in South India, and I went to meet a number of pastors that I'd be working with in the neighboring state of Tamil Nadu. And I sat around with 10 Tamil-speaking pastors, and one of the pastors, the only one that spoke English, was my translator. And we sat around a circle, and I just heard their stories, how God brought them out of Hinduism into a living relationship with Jesus, how God called them to ministry, what their passions were for ministry. I shared the same thing for my life, not how I was a Hindu, but how I came to faith, God's calling on my life. And I'll never forget what my translator, Nason, turned to me and said at the end of our time together. He said, Richie, he said, we know that America is a land of luxury. We know that you leaving America to come to India is like leaving heaven to come to earth. And that was a little bit exaggeration. I mean, he said that. I think it's an exaggeration. Texas is glorious, and I love Texas. I think Texas is the best place in the world. I'm a native Texan and proud of it in a godly sort of pride. Um, I didn't leave heaven to go to India. But there is one who left his palace in heaven, the eternal son of God, who forever had enjoyed unvarnished, uninterrupted communion with his father and the spirit, who delighted and had everything perfect, and yet freely, in obedience to his father and the covenant of redemption, took on humanity and he came to live to redeem God's people. He came to live in their place, and he came to die in their place, and to raise in their place. You see, Esther just thought there was a risk that she would perish. She said, if I perish, I perish. There was great risk, but she didn't know. But Jesus, the Son of God, did not say that when he took on and clothed himself with humanity. He didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, I will perish, and indeed, I must perish to save God's worldwide people, to those the elect that God has given me. And Christ came, and he lived and he died and rose again for all those who had put their faith in him from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And friends, when we delight in that beauty, when we delight in the one who left his palace for us so that we might be freely reconciled to our Father in heaven by his grace and grace alone, when we celebrate Jesus, when we delight in Jesus, when we treasure Jesus, his power is more resident in us and working through us to 
help us to gladly and joyfully risk our place in the palace for his worldwide people. And so I urge you as you think about your place, I urge you as you consider your life in light of Esther's life and your calling to engage in God's worldwide mission to fix your eyes on Jesus, the ultimate palace risker, and for you to leverage your position in the palace for the advancement of Christ's kingdom among the nations. Friends, I say the same thing that Mordecai said to Esther so many years ago. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom, to this palace, for such a time as this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for how your word challenges us and comforts us. It challenges us first with our sin and then comforts us with the gospel of grace. And then it challenges us how we are to live in union with Christ by the power of your spirit to engage in your worldwide mission, knowing that you are the sovereign God and that we are not necessary to you, but yet we are useful and you call us to glad-hearted obedience. And so we feel that challenge again to engage as your people, to risk the blessings you've given us, to use those blessings for the advancement of your kingdom. And yet we find great comfort yet again that you will stand with us, that as Jesus said in that great commission, Lo, I am with you always. And so we thank you that in the most intimate of ways, you empower us and fill us as your church to engage in your mission. And Father, I pray for those today who are wrestling with this text, who are wrestling with your call upon their lives, who are wrestling with the challenge of what it means to live in a palace like North Texas in 2020, that you would move them not to look at what they think they can do in their own strength, but to look to Jesus to be stunned by his beauty and to be persuaded by his promises of help. Father, I pray for those today who are not yet in Christ, those who are yet to join themselves to Jesus by faith, and I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would realize how good you have been in giving them this opportunity, maybe for the first time or the thousandth time, to hear the gospel invitation. Lord, I plead with you that they would respond to Christ by your grace today. Oh, we love you, Lord, and pray that you would work in us your grace, that we might be faithful and obedient in your great commission. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, can we continue to respond to God's word as we stand and as we sing?